0: to the ACB Advocacy Update.: Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the ACB Advocacy Update. I am your host, one of your hosts, Clark Rockfall, the director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. And I'm joined by my co-host.
1: Hi, I'm Swaden Kumar. I am ACB's Advocacy Outreach specialist. so hello.
0: All right, and thank you to everyone listening uh, via your favorite podcast player, whether you're download, downloading or streaming. Uh, please write a review, give us a rating, recommend us to your friends, and hello to everyone listening on ACB Radio. As always, if you'd like to learn more about ACB, please visit our website at acb.org. All right, Swatha. Uh, this podcast is a bit of a continuation on themes that have been, you know, front and center and high importance, not only through the last year in the pandemic, but uh, really for life for ACE and our members. We talk a lot about transportation access, uh, just in general, and also on this podcast. But today, we're dealing with the the other form of ad ca- advocacy and access that is front and center, and that is information access, especially here in the digital age.
1: Yeah. So last time we talked to Rachel Rachel, Rachel Weisberg about um web accessibility. And yeah, so this time we are again to talk more about it and talk about um some recent recent developments in web web access and yeah accessibility in general so yeah
0: that's right last november we were fortunate to have rachel weisberg an attorney with the illinois protection and advocacy organization Mm -hmm. equipped for equality Um, and rachel is joining us again here today rachel how are you doing
2: um, hi, Clark. Hi, Swatha. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm doing well and really thrilled to be back. I had fun last fall, and I'm um, excited to talk more about digital accessibility.
0: Yeah. And last fall, Rachel, you joined us on our podcast, and there are some things that really stood out to me. Um, first, we, we talked a lot about information access, digital access, especially dealing with employment, right? And how not only uh, Title I, of the ADA could apply, uh, but also Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, uh, as well as other provisions of the ADA. Uh, And today we're going to continue on that conversation, but talk about some different aspects of digital inclusion.
2: Absolutely. Sounds good.
0: All right. And in addition to Rachel Weisberg, we have another guest with us today, and that is Peter Berg. And Peter, please introduce yourself from the, the Great Lakes ADA Center.
3: So uh, thank you, Clark and Swatha, and great to be here with uh, with Rachel. Uh, I work for the Great Lakes ADA Center out of Chicago, and we're a member of the federally funded uh, ADA National Network. So happy to uh, be joining you here today.
0: So for those keeping score, uh, it's one of us based out of Alexandria, Virginia, and three other folks on this podcast, all joining from the great state of Illinois. It's fancy how that worked out.
2: <laughs> so, We're trying to take over.
0: <laughs> uh, apparently, apparently. Maybe, you know, that's just where things are moving and shaking there in the Midwest.
2: <laughs> maybe.
0: So, Rachel, the last time we had you on, it was really spurred by some recent activity in the courts. We talked a lot about the... Ninth Circuit, um, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, their decision in the Domino's v. Robles case, uh, a decision that Dominoes then uh, requested certiorari, if I said that correctly, from the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court denied or declined to hear that case, uh, thereby leaving the ninth, r- the ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling uh, to stand. Is that accurate?
2: That that is accurate. Um, You know, when we had a discussion last fall about the Domino's case, I think we were all looking pretty optimistically at the world of digital accessibility. The Ninth Circuit's holding was a really strong one for people with disabilities. It confirmed that Domino's website and app were places of public accommodation under the ADA. Um, It also confirmed that even though the Department of Justice has not yet issued regulations on what digital accessibility means. That did not mean that places of public accommodation did not need to make their websites accessible. So basically said, look, we've had the ADA in place for a number of years. That is sufficient. And the effective communication obligations are clear enough that that means that that places of public accommodation like Domino's need to make their websites and mobile apps accessible. And so the fact that it was um, that Domino's asked the Supreme Court to hear the case, and the Supreme Court declined. That essentially made the Ninth Circuit decision stand. Um, and again, it's a it's it's a really great decision, and one that for folks who are interested, um, Google it, read it. It's it's a really it's a it's a fun decision to read.
0: Fun decision to read, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> You have a twisted sense of humor. Okay.
2: Well, for for some of us, come on, come on.
1: Um, All right, Laura Leander.
0: All right. Sorry. Go ahead, Rachel. Well, the
2: only thing I was going to say is I think today the optimist optimist in me wants to keep um, having a a positive conversation, but I think where we're going today is probably going to be of a more disappointing decision for the disability community. So well, that'll
0: be my teaser. Yeah. So maybe a disappointing decision, but our uh, confidence in view of the ADA applying to digital access is unwavering, uh, despite what the 11th sure Circuit Court of Appeals recently said. So uh, fast forward to April 2021, and there was another appeals court ruling. Um, the Domino's v. Robles case in the Ninth Circuit was in California, and this case was in Florida in the 11th Circuit. So can you talk with us a little bit about the Win dixie case and the recent appeal?
2: Um, yeah, you got it. So I'm going to actually rewind us a little bit back just to start at the beginning. Um, so you're, you're correct that the 11th Circuit issued a decision in April, just last month of 2021, but I want to take us back to... 2017. Um, a few years ago, to give you a little bit of a background of this case. So the case that you're talking about is called Gill versus Win dixie um, It was a case that was brought by a plaintiff named Juan Carlos Gill. Um, he's a blind individual who uses screen reading software to access the internet. And he had attempted to use the a website to access the Winn-Dixie website. So Winn-Dixie, of course, is a grocery store. Um, and Mr. Gill had wanted to do a number of different things on the Win dixie website. Number one is he wanted to be able to use um, the online pharmacy. So for any sighted users, folks were able to go online, uh, pre-order what their prescriptions were, and then they could just go to the pharmacy and pick it up. Um, and another thing that you could do on this website was you could download digital coupons and like kind of link it to your customer card the way that I guess some people can do that. And then once you go into the store, the coupons are all linked to your card and you can have a cost savings. So yeah, Rachel, not- yeah,
0: those sound like, uh, like services that a business may want to offer to entice uh, consumers to use their business. They sure do. Sure that is all. Do.
2: We're on the same page on that one. Um, So, you know, this case looks a lot like a lot of the digital accessibility cases. He um, attempted to use the website. Lo and behold, the website was not programmed in a way to be accessible to someone who uses screen reading software. So he filed a lawsuit under Title III of the ADA. Um, and of course, Title III of the ADA is the part of the law that applies to places of public accommodation. Okay, so what happens next? Well, this case went to a, a trial. This was the first website accessibility trial. Um, that I know of, um, I'm pretty sure, across the country. And, you know, something that really excited disability rights um, advocates, the blind community, is that the court found for Mr. Gill and said, this website is not accessible, and ordered what's called um, an injunction. So the court first said, you know, this, the website violated Title III, and In particular, when dixie violated Title III by having an inaccessible website. Um, and then they said, you know, the, okay. the website really serves, they use the term gateway. It was a gateway toward the physical store. It had, again, this online pharmacy management, these digital coupons. It had a store locator, all sorts of things that would help somebody ultimately get to the physical store. And so... Because of that, we're clear that the website had to be made accessible. And so after kind of finding, we call it the liability phase, they looked at the remedy phase. So what are we going to do to fix it? And the court ordered an injunction. And um, the court said that Winn-Dixie needed to comply with WCAG 2.0 level AA. Okay. It was one of the first court cases out there that was very specific about what type of remedy was in place. And then the court did a bunch of other um, required actions. And these are sometimes things we see in the courts and also in a lot of settlement agreements when we look at, you know, of course, website accessibility isn't a one or done, right? We need websites are always evolving. We need things in place to make sure that as the website evolves and changes, it's gonna remain accessible. And so the court was thoughtful about this in order that the website be audited every few months, that there be an annual web training, also, that there was compliance for third-party vendors who participated on the site, which is another kind of hot-button issue of where your liability ends and starts. Um, and then it also found that there were some estimates that the, it would cost about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to remediate the site. And the court said that wasn't enough to be an undue burden or something that the that the what that the store didn't have to do. So. That again, that decision was in 2017, a while ago. Um, and when Dixie then appealed that case to the 11th Circuit, and the parties argued the case on appeal in October of 2018, so also a very, very long time ago. And from 2018 until April 2021, we've been waiting for a decision. Um, And I will say that, you know, the wheels of justice move slowly. um, Mm -hmm. But this was really slow, right? I mean, this is a long Mm -hmm. time for people to be waiting to find out what's going to happen. And so I think that kind of added to to everyone's, um, I don't know, reaction to what happened in Winn-Dixie just because it had been such a long-awaited decision. Any questions so far?
0: Uh, Questions and comments. So many Um, comments, but I'll stick to the... Uh, PG podcast relevant and friendly (laughs) ones. Uh, So you mentioned WCAG 2.0 level AA. uh, So that's the web content accessibility guidelines um, or WCAG. The interesting thing about that and the fact that this case was from 2017, that was around the same time that uh, the section 508 refresh was being implemented and that same level of accessibility was included in section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act for federal government websites.
2: Sorry, I think I'm having a little delay. So I, I was just going to say, I think that's that's a really good point. And, I, you know, I we can have a whole other conversation once we finish this about, um, about regulations and the Department of Justice's regulations, mm-hmm. but what – what has been interesting is that even though the Department of Justice has not issued regulations, it's been somewhat determined as industry standard that we look to WCAG 2.0 or WCAG, in whatever form, um, as what it means to be accessible. And so it was really exciting for the disability community, again, that the court put that into the injunction. Um, I'll also say, again, it's been many years, and now we have seen in a lot of um, settlement agreements that we're already at WCAG 2.1, and I know WCAG 3.0 is also in works and will most likely be released, um, you know, in the near future.
0: And Rachel, that's a great point, because as you (laughs) highlighted... In the original court ruling, there was the provision to audit and update the website. Um, so as we all know, technology does not stand still, and fortunately, neither do the web content accessibility guidelines. Um, they're o- the World Wide Web Consortium is always looking to update them to keep pace with technology. And one more question, or yeah, we'll call it a question, Rachel. Uh, so you mentioned that there are no Department of Justice guidelines, and plenty of businesses will look and say, you know, woe is me. What am I to do? The government hasn't told me how to make my website accessible, or, or even that I need to make my website accessible. Um, but in both the Domino's v. Roblace case and Gil v. Winn-Dixie, the Department of Justice filed statements of interest, correct?
2: Yes, they did. And the Department of Justice has been very consistent on their opinion. I think the first time they issued an opinion about whether or not Um, websites had to comply with ADA was back in 1996 in a technical assistance letter. And since, I mean, 1996, if I'm doing my math correctly, is 25 years. Um, And since that time, they've issued so many different settlement agreements, so many different statements of interest, so many different amicus briefs that I don't think there's any argument that we have, you know, that we don't know where the Department of Justice stands. From a technical perspective, what a lot of the businesses say is that there's a difference between regulations that go through a very specific rulemaking process and then, you know, statements or comments or letters or other positions that the Department of Justice has taken without undergoing those formal channels.
0: And I guess, (laughs) Swatha, so hearing... Rachel, talk about the the decision from the Ninth Circuit with Domino. Now the Eleventh Circuit with Win Dixie. Uh, it sounds like there are differing decisions and landscapes across the country.
1: Yeah. Um, so with this um, sort of the different decisions across the country, um, what does it mean for businesses and for people with? Um, Advocacy advocates or via advocates and what it mean for them and um kind of how do you reconcile reconcile this reconcile reconcil- reconcil- this differences
2: yeah that's a really great question so let me back up a little bit again sorry, I keep backing us <laughs> all up um there's just so much so much yeah. we could talk about
0: context so, is key. um
2: let me share a little bit about what the eleventh 11th- uh, <laughs> context is important. let me share a little bit about where we were before uh, the 11th Circuit issued the Winn-Dixie des- decision and then where we are now. So before Winn-Dixie issued the, or before the 11th Circuit issued the Winn-Dixie decision, we had some differing opinions in the courts about whether or not websites were places of public accommodation and whether the ADA applied to websites and how we look at that. There's different legal theories. So one of the legal theories that we had um, was that a website be a place of public accommodation even though it doesn't have a physical structure. So essentially as long as the underlying thing that the website does is considered a public accommodation it doesn't matter that it does not tie to a physical place. And so that's the line that we actually have in the Seventh Circuit which is where all of us Chicago people are. Um, It also includes Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. And then it's also what... The what the legal framework is in the first and the second circuit, which are out on the on the northeast. Um, so I would say that that is the broadest interpretation, um, and for my very unbiased opinion, the correct interpretation. Um, okay, so that's number one. The second, and I'd say um, a, a pretty popular. Legal opinion and legal theory about how the ADA applies to websites is what, what we call the nexus requirement. A lot of courts have said, you know, a website in and it of itself may not be a place of public accommodation, but if we have a physical place of public accommodation like a Domino's Pizza, and there's some connection, there's some nexus between what is offered on a website, like ordering a pizza. Placing your order, or looking up what location a physical place is. So, if there's some connection between a website and a physical place of public accommodation, then we need to make that website accessible because it's a nexus to a physical place of public accommodation. And that is the current um, the the current legal theory in the Ninth Circuit, which is where the the Domino's case kind of reiterated that was the legal theory. It's also the legal th- theory in the Third and the Sixth Circuit, and then until the Winn-Dixie decision, that was what was pretty much thought to be the, the theory in the Eleventh Circuit, which again is in the Southeast. Um, so it was really a surprise, I think, to everybody when the Eleventh Circuit issued their decision. So I feel like we've done a lot of teasers. So let me just jump in and explain what the Eleventh Circuit found. So the 11th Circuit said first that the Win dixie website is not in and it of itself a place of public accommodation because, and I'm quoting here, public accommodations are limited to actual physical places, okay? So in no world would a website itself be a place of public accommodation. Um, but again, that, that doesn't necessarily end the question, right? Because then the second question is, well, what happens if there's a nexus? Well, the 11th Circuit said, you know, we don't agree with the nexus theory. We don't think that that's the proper legal theory, which again was a big surprise because that's what everyone kind of thought. That's what the 11th Circuit had um, had, had had adopted. And it was something that a lot of the, their district courts had used, but the 11th Circuit said the legal theory that we are gonna use is a little bit different. The question is, Whether Winn-Dixie or any place of any physical place violated Title III by having an inaccessible website, we need to consider whether the inaccessible website creates a, quote, intangible barrier preventing disabled individuals from, quote, fully and equally experiencing the services from the brick-and-mortar Winn-Dixie store, okay? So it's it 's not enough that there's some connection, but whether the in accessible website is a complete barrier to enabling access to somebody, so they didn 't say that a website could never be required to be accessible. But it's going to have to be, you know, a pretty important website, a website that's going to really adversely impact somebody's in-person experience. And they said here, when they did a kind of a deep dive into what Winn-Dixie's website did, they said they, they kind of dismissed the website as something that didn't do much. They said it has real limited funct- limited functionality, they emphasized repeatedly this phrase and they said that the website itself didn't sell anything and that all of the interactions that you would initiate on on the website had to still be completed in the store. So remember I mentioned those pharmacy orders and those coupon linkings. They said, you know, Mr. Gill, he can still go into the store and place his pharmacy order. It's not a complete barrier to him. And he can still go into the store and use these coupons because, You still can have paper coupons, although it's not, of course, going to be the same speed or convenience or, you know, frankly, the privacy that other people would have. Um, And so that's that's pretty much the decision. And we can talk a little bit more about its impact. But I want to make sure that that was an okay explanation if anyone has questions about what the actual decision.
0: And then quickly, Rachel, what are the next steps Uh, So what happens next now that there's this decision from the Circuit Court of Appeals in the 11th Circuit?
2: Sure. So the way that appellate courts work is that when you have your first decision, you argue your case before a panel of three judges and the three judges issue the decision. And that's what's happened so far. So if you don't like that decision, you can a couple of things. One option is that you can file a petition for rehearing, either with the same panel or en banc. En banc essentially means that you ask the entire panel, so all of the judges on the 11th Circuit, to rehear the case. Um, Both of those options are, are discretionary to the court, so they're optional. So the court can decide whether or not to rehear the case en banc. So, the plaintiff in this case did file a petition for en banc review. We filed it on April 15th. Um, and there are a number of different factors that courts will consider when deciding whether to grant something en banc. And I think a lot of the factors are present here, so it can be whether it's an important legal issue, whether there's a dissenting opinion, or one of the original panelists disagreed, and that was the case here. Um, And I also think there's some argument that the decision is in potential conflict with the prior decisions. And so... Um, we don't yet have a determination of whether or not the 11th Circuit will rehear the case on bonk but that's that's a possibility and something to look out for the The other and second option is what we were talking about before with the Domino's case, which is that depending on what happens um, either you know Mr. Gill or let's say the case is reheard on bonk and, Mr. Gill succeeds, then potentially when Dixie, but someone would have the opportunity to file a writ of certiorari in the Supreme Court and asking the Supreme Court to hear the case. Um, that, of course, also is discretionary. The Supreme Court gets tons of requests and makes a decision about you know the few cases that they're going to take. And one factor in that is whether or not there's a sp- split in the circuit. Um, and I think you know here, as we've talked about a little bit, is that there are different legal theories depending on where the case is brought and that can be a factor in whether or not a case is brought to this to the Supreme Court
0: all right thank you, Rachel and my main takeaway is don't bring a website accessibility case in the 11th circuit at this time <laughs> uh, changing gears slightly uh,
2: yeah you know I think Oh, uh, no, the only thing I want to say is you know I I've been a lot of a lot of, you know, things somewhat pessimistic about what the decision is. Um, I want to emphasize that despite the fact that I think it's a disappointing decision um, for a lot of reasons, I don't think and I don't think I'm alone in thinking this, that I don't think it's going to have a huge immediate impact um, for people with disabilities, mm-hmm. for the world of digital accessibility, um, for a few different reasons. and. Um, one is, you know, of course, as we said, there, the Seventh Circuit, um, really only applies to three states, right? So it only applies to Alabama, Florida, and Georgia. So the decision is going to have no immediate impact on businesses that are operating outside of those three states. So that's, that's, you know, number one. Number two is that, you know, digital accessibility is unique in that it's, if there's a, a store in Florida that has a website, but it offers services to people outside of Florida, well, then that website is still subject to the rules of the other states, right? So, you know, it's very, um, I think it, there's not a lot of websites that are going to be operating and businesses that are operating only in Alabama, Florida, and Georgia and not operating in other states. And so, even though we have this decision, it's not going to impact those businesses either. Um which I think is an important point for for businesses and also for people with disabilities to know that this doesn't, you know, limit your rights except for in a pretty narrow set of circumstances. Um, and then the third thing is that you know the court really emphasized kind of like how limited this website was and the limited functionality it provided. And there's even some discussion now about well, maybe when Dixie's website back in 2017 didn't sell things online, my understanding is that now it might. And so I wonder what would happen if we had another Winn-Dixie case and someone filed a new lawsuit and said, hey, this website no longer has limited functionality, but it's a huge website that's really robust and offers all sorts of goods and services. Um, you know, that might change the outcome as well. So my, my assessment is that it's a disappointing decision Especially after such a long wait for it, but I think that its that its impact on on us, um, its practical impact is pretty is pretty is pretty limited.
0: Well, thank you. That is definitely interesting food for thought. On this yes. uh, right now, I want to transition over to Peter Berg, and Peter, please share with
3: us some of the work that you do with the Great Lakes ADA Center. Absolutely. Uh, thanks. Clark, uh, the Great Lakes ADA Center is part of the federally funded uh, ADA national network. So the national network is uh, funded uh, by the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research, which is under uh, the US Department of Health and, and Human Services. So uh, th- the overall mission of the, the network uh, is to foster voluntary compliance um, of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, the national network is in its uh, 30th year of operation. Um, so the network came into being uh, one year uh, after, the, after the ADA was signed into law. And actually, uh, the, the fifth title of the ADA is the one that established, uh, the national network. Federal agencies are required under the ADA to provide technical guidance, uh, on the Americans with Disabilities Act to people with disabilities, as well as, um, covered entities. So, uh, being able to provide information about rights and responsibilities. And the national network was established as a means to do that outside of the realm of an enforcement agency. So the, the primary, uh, services that the the network provides um, are technical assistance, which I say is just a a fancy way of answering questions. Uh, We do that over a toll-free technical assistance line. Uh, We do that through online contact forms and people uh, emailing us uh, uh, directly. Uh, The second main service that is uh, uh, provided is training. And, and that's done in a, 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 a myriad of ways. Even uh, before the pandemic, uh, the Great Lakes Center uh, managed a number of uh, online webinar programs on behalf of the national network. And uh, I'll talk about some of those a, a, a little bit later. And then the final is uh, information dissemination. So we Uh, distribute materials that are produced by the various federal agencies that have uh, enforcement responsibility and agencies such as the U.S. Access Board, which provides guidance on a a variety of topics, including the accessibility standards under the ADA. Um, The ADA National Network has also developed a number of fact sheets and other uh, guidance materials, uh, and uh, we also disseminate uh, materials that are developed by uh, federal uh, grantees. So th- th- that's the primary uh, emphasis of the services provided by the um, uh, by the network. Um, the network also does um, uh, research. Each of the 10 centers uh, takes on on research uh, uh, projects as, as part of it. But the, the core services that we provide to the public and the ones that really have the impact and people with disabilities, disability organizations, employers, businesses, state, local government entities, architects um, are really the, the technical assistance, the training uh, and the information dissemination that is provided by the uh, by the network.
0: All right. Wow. Uh, sponsor <laughs> being an Illinois resident, at, at least for a little while longer, have you ever worked with or taken advantage of the services of the Great Lakes ADA Center?
1: I have not I've never heard heard of them before this podcast, so yeah,
0: oh, no. well, here's your opportunity. you have any questions for Peter
1: yeah, um, can you speak to like what we've heard we've heard a lot from other people that from like business, businesses and others that there are no clear guidelines or trainings for for accessibility for access to accessibility so um can you sort of speak to that and um, also speak to the impact of the dominoes and cases on the ADA e- e- e network? So.
0: Yeah, so sure. Peter, let's take that one at a time. And is the ADA national network a resource that's available to, uh, you know, corporations, businesses, or even the small business community?
3: Absolutely, that, you know that's one of our, our target uh, audiences. The network um, we, we do not provide legal guidance. We don't. Uh, we don't have attorneys, um, you know, providing legal interpretation, legal guidance, and we're not an av- advocacy organization. Um, so, so our role is to is, is to provide information uh, so that whether it's a person with a disability or it's a small business owner or a small employer that they fully understand rights and responsibilities under the ADA and That they have all the appropriate information, guidance, if they want the regulations, um, so that they can go and make the the, the appropriate decision. So we, you know, we don't we will not beat someone over the head uh, and tell them you must you must do that. You know, we we give it guidance. We will point to. Um, uh, to information enforcement uh, case law you know to help uh, uh, facilitate that understanding and, and in terms of the you know the um, access to you know accessible technology websites and, and apps um, um, you know one of the things that that I do when I talk to small businesses or businesses of any size um, it, it you know I, I often will point back to uh, the, the the 2014 settlement agreement between the Department of Justice and H&R Block, um, which I, I think was the first time that in a settlement agreement, the Justice Department required H&R Block to comply with the we, Rachel talked about the the, the WCAG uh, 2.0 in and, and that uh, settlement agreement, I think, was a, a consent uh, degree um uh, DOJ required H&R Block to apply uh, WCAG 2.0 AA to not only to their website but also to their their mobile apps. Um, so you know, back then it was it was clear um, you know that w- where the Department of Justice was was going um, with with web access and what they hopefully <laughs> will get to a point that uh, where that will be a, a built-in standard. Um, but one of the one of the difficult Things with this topic and talking to businesses when, uh, when, when you can't point to, okay, this is, this is the regulation and then this is the accessibility standard. You know, when an architect calls me or a business calls me and says, you know, wh- why do I have to make 100% of my multi user toilet rooms accessible? I can go, well, you know, go to the ADA standards, go to uh, chapter 213, and it tells you, you know, here's your scoping. You have to make them all accessible. Um, we, we, we don't have that same ability when it comes to accessible technology. So it it, it takes um, education, and, and again, that's what the national network here is to do. And sometimes um, that that takes several steps, you know, in pointing out. You know, first and foremost, the ADA is a civil rights law. So we're not, you know, it's not an accessibility standard. It's not a accessible parking law. Um, it, it's a civil rights law that 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 gives rights to people with disabilities, and you know, stating that people with disabilities should have the same opportunity as people without uh, disability. So taking it from, from that standpoint and then talking about, um, you know, where, where you can clearly point to something in the ADA are the requirements for effective communication. You know, the, the Title Three of the ADA is clear that businesses have an obligation to communicate effectively with people who are deaf, hard of hearing, um, uh, blind, uh, low vision, or who have uh, speech disabilities. and And you can point to that um, but you're still you know going to get some weary people to say well where does it say that I absolutely have to apply this um and you know unfortunately there there isn't that um but you know, we we also point to you know there, you can you can check there are lots of uh, um, lawsuits out there re- regarding web access, and you know, and not not doing that as a threat, but just to make you know businesses, uh, you know, uh, aware. So you know, it is really an, an education when we get contacted by by small businesses or even you know web designers who are are working with companies and say, you know, tell me what you know the the company wants to comply. Just show us what we need to. Uh, to 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 follow, so you know it it, it can be a little confusing. But if people take a step back and and educate themselves, they can see the uh, the connection as you know the ADA as a civil rights law to the need to make things uh, accessible and provide access.
0: So, Peter, you touched on it uh, when talking about the H and R Block settlement, but that the internet is not only websites, there are websites, there are mobile apps, uh, online systems, portals, and probably other things that I am failing to mention. Um, So do the uh, equal access provisions apply Uh, more broadly than only to websites? And uh, it's Peter and then Rachel, if there's anything you would want to add on this topic as well.
3: Yeah, you know. I think that, you know, goes back to what Rachel was talking about in the, you know, the differing views in, uh, in, in the various circuits of, you know, uh, across the, the, the country and how I think for, for Title II, state and local government, um, I think there's a, a clear connection that, it, you know, the overall obligation under Title II of the ADA is program access. All, all program services activities need to be accessible, you know, and usable by people with disabilities. Um, and, and that includes, you know, state colleges, universities when you get to title three again it it's 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 a little murky and just not uh, not as as clear as to the uh, the application depending on you know where where the business is is located and you know as mentioned it, the, you know when the ADA was passed the you know the the, the world wide web was was not uh, in existence Rachel yeah, and anything?
2: i I agree with I agree with peter i I pretty much always agree with Peter but I, I agree with Peter on all of that Um, And the other thing I'll just mention is that when we're talking about some of these other digital, um, but non website type things, like maybe like, I don't know if a kiosk is.
0: Oh, you went there.
2: Is a good example. But yeah, I mean, when we talk about, like, let's say that we have something within a place of public accommodation, I think, you know, that's a service that's being provided within something. So you don't have to make as much of like the legal jump. And so um, for those types of. You know, services provided within a physical store, um, you know, I, I think the law would, would require all of those to be made accessible.
0: And, and Rachel, because you mentioned a kiosk, uh, that's basically a, a well self-service transaction machine is another name for a kiosk, right? And actually, the, the U.S. Access Board is having a, a webinar, I believe, on May 19th about accessible kiosks. Uh, but we're all familiar, and I think most people in the public are familiar with Braille on ATMs. That's basically a you know, the the OG or the original kiosk, right?
1: <laughs> yep, yep.
0: Um but what about businesses today where either you're checking in, you're making appointments, you're ordering food, or providing payment on a a kiosk or a tablet. Um independently of working with employees or customer service agents at the location.
2: Right. I mean, I think it all goes back to the, to the laws Peter said, right? So title three entities need to provide effective communication. Um, empl- title three entities can choose how to do that as long as they're providing, you know, equally effective communication. So if the only option is a self-service um, kiosk, I you know, my, I think that that needs to be made in a way that someone um, with a disability is able to access it as well. Um, I don't know if Peter has any anything to add on that.
3: Yeah, I think a couple of things that you mentioned, Clark, are specifically covered in the 2010 standards. So ATMs, there are specific requirements when an mm-hmm. ATM is part of the built environment. So when it's a affixed to uh, to the floor, to the wall, what have you. And, and the 2010 standards also uh, specifically address um you know, fair token machines. So, machines that are used in, in transit stations where you can purchase tickets or add money to, uh, you know, a, a, a card that you use to get um, on trains and, and uh, on the vehicles. So, you know, businesses could, could clearly, you know, adapt those, those specific requirements to other types of, of uh, in store, you know, in location, um, kiosks, point of sale. Sales machines, um, you know, because right now the 2010 standards talk about, you know, point of sale from uh, the ability for someone to, you know, be able to reach it, you know, is referring to someone that's uh, in a wheelchair or someone of, you know, small stature that is within the reach range. Uh, but there isn't uh, necessarily specific technical requirements for the ability to independently operate that that point of, of, of sale, um, sales machine. But if, if businesses, as Rachel mentioned, can. Clearly, use those, or they can apply the you know the the, the section five hundred eight you know standards as their best practice, or you know WCAG two point one AA you know to ensure that they're they're making their um, the, the, these types of technologies accessible.
2: And you know one one good resource if there are businesses listening or you know for advocates that want to point to other samples, um, Laney Feingold's website has a whole section about point of sales um, settlements. And I, I love to look at Lainey's Laney's different ideas, and it's good. To, she's got so many different types of um, different types of stores and retailers that I think exploring the point of sales part of the her website is a is a great starting point for folks
3: and, and, uh, and also, Clark and, and Swatha, the, the National Network is a resource for information. Um, I, I talked about some of the webinars earlier. And one webinar program that the uh, Great Lakes manages on behalf of the National Network is an accessible technology webinar series. And um, that has covered a whole host of topics. And there are all of those sessions have been archived. And those cover everything from websites to apps to document uh, uh, design. Um, And you can uh, access uh, upcoming sessions in that program um, by visiting accessibility online, all one word, accessibilityonline.org and then uh, locating the accessible technology uh, series. And, and there's an entire page of archives uh, where folks can listen to those archives and the, the uh, presentation materials are also available for those sessions. And then we also, um, we don't manage this one. We support um, the federal government with this one, but we uh, work with uh, the Access Board and other federal agencies under Section 508 webinar program. And that is also available uh, through the accessible accessibilityonline.org website. And again, while well, that is specifically talking about the obligations of federal agencies under section 508 of the rehab act, great resource for businesses and employers, anyone interested in ensuring that their technologies are accessible and usable by people with disabilities and contacting your, your regional, uh, ada center um, which you can uh, mention there are 10 centers that that each cover a a set of states and you can locate the the center that serves the the state you're located in by visiting uh, adata.org adata.org is where you can locate the uh, the center that serves your uh, your particular state well
0: rachel and peter you both provided some some Great resources and information, not only for individuals, uh, advocacy organizations, as well as uh, those public places of accommodation, uh, businesses, and private sector entities as well. So thank you so much for that. As you look into your crystal ball. Uh, and as we look through the, the future, we know we got close to having regulations from the Department of Justice in the 2011 to 2015 time frame. Uh, are you optimistic that w- there will be some definitive regulations coming out of the Department of Justice in, oh, I don't know, say the next four years? I'll go first i'm going
3: to take off my
2: i'll
3: take off my ada my great lakes uh, hat because i'm not an advocate and i will put on my advocacy hat as someone who is who is uh blind um yeah i i i, I feel uh uh, better today that that we will see some uh, some accessibility standards promulgated. What I'd r- really like to see, a- again personally, um, rather than the Department of Justice initiating rulemaking and um, and uh, issuing accessibility standards under the ADA for for accessible technologies, I'd, I'd like to see some very limited legislation uh, that directs the Access Board, um, and the Department of Justice and, and mm-hmm. other entities with enforcement to promulgate um, accessibility standards under the ADA, and that make a, a you know, a, a minor amendment to the ADA and, and clarify under Title three, um, that websites are, are places of public accommodation. So putting my Great Lakes hat back on top of my bald head.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, I I think that would be ideal. I mean, I think at this point, you know, we've been having disagreements in the courts for such a long time about this issue, and it, you know, it even though we can advocate and argue that the law is is clear, um, you know, I think it does create like like Peter said, a lot of uncertainty about exactly what to point to when trying to get a business. Um, to make all of their information accessible. So I, I agree that the, the very best way to do that would be legislation. I'm, I'm My crystal ball, I don't know if that's possible. And if regulations are the best we're gonna get, I'm, I support that. I mean, I do think there's gonna be something positive in the next four years. Um, I think that there's a lot of momentum for it by exactly what that looks like. I guess it'll be a a wait and see or an advo- something that we all need to do as advocates to make sure that the thing that we that comes up in the near future is something that's going to be um what we need and what's going to be effective.
0: I hope that there is a definitive timeline given to the access board or the department of justice or whomever else that will be Enforcing these regulations, because' um, you know, a lot of us believe that the government already has this authority they they just need to use it right so if we 're going to have new legislation i'd really like there to be a a definitive timeline for implementation so that enforcement can begin all right, well, Rachel and Peter, you shared with us again so just some fabulous resources, and it was actually one of the uh, technical assistance webinars done by the Great Lakes ADA Center that introduced, at least in the ACB National Office here in the Washington, D.C. area, to Peter and to Rachel. So some some great resources that we'll continue to share with our members. Before we get going here, I I would be remiss if I did not point out that a week from the day that this podcast airs, Thursday, May 20th, will be Global Accessibility Awareness Day, the 10th such GAD, as we like to call it, G-A-A-D, the 10th day to uh, recognize and celebrate digital access and inclusion. So at ACB and our executive director, Eric Bridges, uh, teasing something up here, will have a live video with one of the co-founders of GAD, um, the Head of Accessibility Evangelism from LinkedIn, Jennison Assumption, as well as the Head of Accessibility for Facebook, Mike Shabanek, also known as one of the guys who invented voiceover on Apple. Um, so just a conversation with them about how digital access and inclusion has evolved over the past 10 years and where we are going. So certainly tune in and look for that. But I want to turn it back to Peter and Rachel to hear if uh, the 88 National Network is doing anything to celebrate Global Accessibility Awareness
3: Day. Absolutely, Um absolutely. Check your uh, regional ADA centers, check out the uh, Great Lakes on, on social media. We will have a presence the entire, uh, the entire week. Uh, Great Lakes will be working with our state affiliates, uh, Equipped for Equality, where Rachel is located, uh, is our uh, state affiliate in Illinois, the Illinois ADA project. And so we will be uh, posting on social media uh, the entire week, uh, um, You know, uh, highlighting uh, global uh, accessibility.
0: All right. Well, again, Rachel and Peter, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Rachel, for providing us an update of the legal and court landscape regarding web access, or more broadly, digital access and inclusion. Peter, thank you for sharing the work of the ADA National Network. I know I will certainly check out accessonline.org and see if we can find some great materials for ACB to share with our
3: members as well. AccessibilityOnline.Org. Uh, so that is the, the website, and thank you, Clark and Swatha, for uh, having me today. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Clark and Swatha. It's been fun.
3: Yeah, awesome. And Swatha will close
0: this podcast the way we close all our podcasts by saying,
2: "Keep advocating." Get up, get up, get up, get up.